podcast is part of the 80s Ruled Network. Visit the 80s Ruled on Facebook for more 1980s awesomeness. Escape from New York. It's not even true. No, no, it goes backwards. Mm. Counterclockwise. I think I read that's not true. What I'm saying. I'm pretty sure it's in. Cro- if you watch Crocodile Dundee, you can see that happen. <laughs> <laughs> when they show him go to the bathroom and they zoom in on the toilet. <laughs> that famous scene. I might have to rewatch that. That's not a knife. <laughs> hey, whoa! Welcome back to another episode of 1980s Now, a weekly examination of the importance of 1980s pop culture and. It's influence today. My name is Will, and joining me as always are my friends and co-hosts, Ray and Kat. Hello there. Hi, Will. Hello. Oh, you're ignoring Kat. Oh. <laughs> she looks stunned. This. Wow. <laughs> Listen, I had a few technical problems. Yeah. I'm sorry I made us late. Moved on. Yeah. How you doing, Kat? Come on, relax. I'm so much better now. <laughs> She's on edge. Yes. <laughs> on today's show, we're going to be speaking with John Walsh. Not that one. <laughs> not the not the one who used to host America's Most Wanted. No, instead, we're going to be speaking with the double BAFTA-nominated filmmaker and author of the upcoming Escape from New York, the official story of the film. And by the way, you can pre-order it right now on Amazon. It doesn't come out until uh, November uh, 22nd in the UK and December 14th in the US. Uh, but he's written books before, including most recently one a similar book about the film Flash Gordon that we're big fans of. And so if this book's anything like that, it's going to be chock full of stuff that you never knew or could find out about because since this is an official film book, he gets unprecedented access to like all the... What are you giggling about? Ray, when he's going like this. I'm not doing anything. I'm just, I'm sitting here listening to Will share information. Right. I don't know what you're talking about. Will, I'm sorry. We're like two that's, bad students in a classroom. Uh, okay. she, she's just sucking you down now. Right? <laughs> two, we're too bad. We're both bad, Ray. Yeah, she's trying to drag me down to right. her level, but I never shoplifted. It does sound. <laughs> what? Just. <laughs> Because you made a couple, you copied a couple of songs. Or I, I only, uh, yeah. You're just starting oh, no, no, wait, I said that wrong. I shoplifted, you didn't. Okay. All right. You are both bad students. And one of you is a bad citizen. <laughs> all right. Sorry about all that, John. But we'll talk to him a little bit later about uh, Escape from New York and get some of the behind the scenes details that'll be shared in his book in a little while. But before we move on, it is once again time to. Thank you for your cooperation. Hey, we heard from. Ooh. I'm going to see Jamie rushing. Jamie writes, hi, y'all from West Alabama. Thank you for your cooperation. Awesome. That's it? <laughs> well, Jamie actually also wrote rock 80s music. Even better. <laughs> so I guess Jamie's really into uh, 80s music. Rock, rock and roll, so. particularly from the 1980s. And we are too, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. All right, cool. Thank you, Jamie. All right, hey, let's get caught up on 1980s news. All right, it's it finally came. Uh, the 12th installment in the Halloween series, Halloween Kills, was recently released in uh, theaters and on Peacock. Either of you guys check it out? Absolutely. Okay. Not. No? <laughs> Absolutely not. <laughs> what did you think, Ray? It's trash. Okay. <gasps> oh, no. It's- you were really looking forward to this. <laughs> oh, no, cat. 
Hey, that's just his opinion. You might love it. No, no, Ray was really looking forward to this. I wasn't. Uh-huh. But Ray well, was all excited. A- and- actually, I was not that excited because I didn't like the last movie. Mm-hmm. Okay. Oh. But I was mm-hmm. like, maybe they'll course correct. Yeah. Mm. No. But all they did was take the character of Tommy yeah. and give it to Anthony Michael Hall yeah. and have him scream, evil dies tonight for two <laughs> hours. Oh my goodness. Ray. Wow. Oh my God, it was bad. To decide if I wanted to watch this movie, I watched the pitch meeting. And he <laughs> says that, he goes on and on about that. If you guys never checked out the uh, pitch meetings, you, you need to do that by Ryan yes. George. Uh, okay. They're hilarious recaps of films in a very invent- inventive way. But ah. uh, yeah, as Ray mentioned, so, you know, this film yeah. uh, is uh, itself a sequel to the 2018 film, which is itself a sequel to the original 1978 film, which, you know, ignores all the films in between. Um, mm-hmm. And although we had uh, Jamie Lee Curtis uh, reprise her role, we didn't have any of the former Tommies return to the film. So instead, this character Tommy, which was actually the little boy that Laurie's babysitting in the first film, mm-hmm. Brian Andrews played him as a kid in the original film. And in, in the, uh, the first older version we had of Tommy, in Halloween 6, The Curse of Michael Myers was actually placed, played by fresh-faced new actor Paul Rudd. Yeah, who still looks exactly like he did when he did this movie. Maybe that's why he's not in it. They're like, you didn't age. Yeah. I, we need I, you to be older. You know what? It's not It's not Hall's fault. Like, they didn't write anything good for him. He's a good actor. Yeah. He's, a, he's actually a great actor. They gave him crap to work with. Mm. And uh, the other problem with this movie is, is Jamie Lee Curtis is in a bed the entire movie. <laughs> oh, okay. So if you haven't yeah. seen it, there's your spoiler. Yeah. She's oh, going to lay around in bed, you know, almost the entire movie because from what I've seen, I've had, uh, I've seen other people say this too. This is the empire strikes yeah. back of the, oh. the, the trilogy here. So, yeah. But you know, unfortunately, and I get that analogy, but it seems like they even failed there, right? Because the idea being that Luke's not that active in Empire Strikes Back and comes back in Return of the Jedi, but yeah, he was but, a lot more active. He was doing stuff. But once again, there are many, many, many people who think Empire Strikes Back is the best movie in that series. Yes, there are. There are. I believe I might think that. <laughs> so this is, um, if I got to give it a one out of 10, I give this a four. Mm. Only because I enjoyed seeing the season of the witch mask. Yeah. <laughs> That's it. They get four points for that and everything else was garbage. And we saw those in the trailer months ago when we first talked about it. Yeah. Uh, hey, I remembered, yeah. um, I think, why I ended up seeing this movie when I did, when it first came out as a child, because my brother was born actually on Halloween. And while my mom was in the hospital, my dad was in charge. And I think he thought, let's go see a movie. And either I didn't get a vote or I was outvoted. My sister was thrilled. Hmm. <laughs> she she helped me recall all this because I was with her a few weekends ago and she was so upset that she wasn't at the opening of this movie and she was doing something else instead. But how, why is it your sister missed it? You're saying, you said she, your sister oh, missed no, it. Oh, no, no, right? no, no, no. She, she missed this one, like the current one coming oh, out oh, because oh, she was in New oh. Jersey. I'm sorry. I was confusing that together. Well, yeah. It's not your fault, Kat. <laughs> There's literally, I think, three films named Halloween in this franchise alone. No, seriously. Exactly. <laughs> yes. There are. 
she so, she should not feel bad about this one go. at all. She should absolutely watch it on Peacock. Yeah. Oh, and apparently she should just wait for right. the third movie to come out and then Jamie Lee Curtis gets involved again. Maybe gets out of bed? Well, I think this movie <laughs> ends with her getting out of bed, right? Yeah. Yeah. She eventually, uh, she gets up, she yawns, stretches a little bit and oh. gets out of bed. I mean- And then she's like, evil <laughs> dies in the next yeah, film. It, it, oh my God. <laughs> Later tonight. If, if they say that one more goddamn time, <laughs> I may lose my mind. Evil <laughs> dies tonight. Like the whole town, yeah. like everyone the in mob. town is standing around and they're doing evil dies tonight. It's like, a, yeah. like, Oh my God. Okay. You want to kill somebody? Fine. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> Ryan George points out that somebody says something about how, Oh, maybe it's uh, Anthony Michaels. Hawk. Yeah. I think he makes a speech saying, look, this Michael Myers has terrorized this town for 40 years and it stops now. And Ryan George points out, he says, you mean the 40 years while he was locked in the mental institution? Because he just got out. He was still torturing you? Well, I also like how they accidentally, you know, caused somebody to jump out a window who they think is him, who's like five foot two. Who looks nothing like him. Who looks nothing like the gosh. (laughs) Uh, Like, come on, man, be better. Jesus. <laughs> While Paul Rudd's incarnation of Tommy existed in a part of the Halloween timeline that's not acknowledged by this new movie, the producer, Malik Akkad, admits he still wanted to bring back Paul Rudd for the role. And in fact, Akkad's first job as a producer was on Halloween 6. He was involved in, ho- in first hiring Paul Rudd for the part. As for the... <laughs> what? No, they would have had to age him. Yeah. They would have had to use CGI to age yeah. Paul Rudd so he'd actually look his age. Yeah. <laughs> As for the original Tommy Doyle actor, uh, Brian Andrews, it's not clear why he wasn't brought back because- well, I can tell you why, Well, if you'd like to know. Let me just first point this out. The, yeah, other, point the, out. the other child <laughs> who was uh, babysat by Laurie in the original movie, Lindsay Wallace, returned w- with uh, the original actress, uh, Kyle Richards. And some other original actors came back as well. But Andrews said that he's publicly, that he feels hurt about the recasting of Tommy Doyle. And in fact, there was a change.org petition to try to get him in the film. Wow. Why wasn't he in it, Ray? Because he's not pretty. Oh. I don't, is, yeah? Hmm. It's Hollywood, man. Oh. Hmm. I mean, you have your options of a guy who's not good looking or Anthony Michael Hall, who's famous, or Paul Rudd, which, which one of the three, you know, <laughs> which one of the three is going to lose out in yep. that situation? Hmm. Oh, the guy who didn't age to be pretty. Yeah, I guess. All right. Hey, in other 1980s news, staying on the topic of Anthony Michael Hall, during his press junket, uh, you know, when he's going around talking about his role in this film, uh, per The Hollywood Reporter, he shared that John Hughes told him his idea for a Breakfast Club sequel. So, uh, as we know, of course, Anthony Michael Hall broke out because of a a number of notable projects that John Hughes wrote, directed, or wrote and directed, produced, et cetera, and so on. While he was uh, detailing his uh, falling out with the filmmaker, which led to the pair not speaking for 20 years, leading right up to Hughes passing in 2009, he uh, mentioned that um, the last time he spoke with John Hughes in 1987, just as he was beginning production on The Great Outdoors, which is a hilarious movie with John Candy and Dan Dan Aykroyd, uh, Hall remembered a few details the writer-director had laid out about the follow-up to the instant classic teen dramedy. He said, quote, at the time, he did mention the potential of doing a sequel to The Breakfast Club. It would have been all of us in our middle age. His idea was to pick up with them in their 20s or 30s, end quote. Huh. I, I, yeah. I can't imagine the logistics of that. 
<laughs> well, I can because this is exactly what I talked about previously on the podcast when I said they would all be at a Comic Con together. Oh yeah, in their twenties <laughs> or thirties. So uh, I think I'm uh, a couple steps ahead of him on his game plan. So yeah, as mm. usual, you know, and this is not the, I think your idea is still even better than the ones we've heard over the last few decades, because this isn't the first time we've heard tell of this in 2015, Molly Ringwald, who was also one of the members of the breakfast club, uh, spoke to the daily beast during the films uh, about the film's 30th anniversary and talked about how this rumor keeps popping up. And in 2005, a now defunct website, Cinematic, reported that Emilio Estevez had signed on to appear in the sequel. And at that time, Estevez uh, revealed, quote, John's got an idea for a sequel. Mature aged students at college all doing time again. Oh, boy. They just, I mean, come on. They wound up in detention again. They're at the same school again. At college? Yes. And he, for some reason or another, and he adds, the twist would be that we're all polar opposites of how we were in the original. Judd Nelson's character, for example, would now be the straight-laced one. Uh, SMS stated that he's definitely in if it happens. This is in 2005. Of course, we never saw that actually happen. Right. I, I don't know right. if any of that sounds interesting. That that college version hey. sounds really super derivative of the original and contrived. Mm-hmm. Race thing sounds better. Maybe they're friends in the future at some nerdy <laughs> yeah. convention. Yeah, yeah. You'd have to go back and find the, uh, the episode I laid this out Yeah, I'm trying on, to remember. But, uh, basically, one, you know, like- one of them's there for community service and one of them's huh. working there and one of them's a guest. So oh, right, right, right. I didn't lay it out which one's the guest or anything. Yeah. Like one of them becomes oh. famous and others are just there. Mm-hmm. And one of them's there to get the autograph of the one they were in detention with. So. <laughs> but, um, and then there was like a, a calamity where they were all trapped inside the building for the whole day. So, all right. I'd like one. you to flesh this out a little. I want to know who's who, who's in what role. Yeah. So do a little more with this, Ray. Yeah, that'll work out. Come back to us. We need a treatment, as they say in Hollywood. All right. Okay. In other 1980s (laughs) news, it's finally here. I said that about Halloween, but this is also finally here. What is? On October 22nd, just in time to celebrate their 40th anniversary, (gasps) Duran Duran released their 15th studio album, (laughs) Future Past. You guys know what that means. It's time to play. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> now, have either of you guys checked out this album? Yes. Oh, yeah. No. No. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, good. It's kind of like the Halloween movie. <laughs> yes, no. <laughs> yes, no. So you guys are perfect to host this show with me here. Excellent. Oh, yes. yes. Okay. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give these questions to Ray. Well, you know, we'll let him answer first. And then, Kat, you can give your answer. And then we'll see. You know, okay. who's right. Okay. So what I'm going to do for you, I've just got two, <laughs> two questions, so to speak, or two examples for you here. I am going to play you first. Let's say it's called A and B. A. Right. No, let's not call it that. That's going to be confusing. <laughs> One and two. No, that's going to be confusing. All right. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to play you right. two clips from two Duran okay. Duran songs. Okay. And I want you to tell me, now Kat, you're in an advantage because you listen to the new album. So Ray, I want you to tell me which one is the song from the 1980s. One All of them right, is from their album that just came out a week ago. And one of them is a nice. song from the 1980s. Okay. All right, let's do this. Your, and I'm not going to tell you the names because yeah. in the event that might give it. Yeah. Give yeah. I don't need, I don't need names. Just give me songs. All right. Here's a song. Here's number one. <laughs> I'm 
supposed to guess? No, I'll give you the second one now. Okay, so now either that one or this next one is from the 1980s. <laughs> now I should give you a little warning maybe. I tweaked the EQ and some of the stereo. Yeah, it doesn't matter. I tried <laughs> to compress the quality, so that's not going to help you. Just play the right, goddamn here's, song. Here's the second one. One of those is from the 1980s, and one of them was from the album that just came out last uh, week. I'm going to say the first one's from the 80s. All right. What do you say, Kat? I say nope. Hmm. So, um, hmm, I don't know. Do I say Kat is right or, Kat, or Ray is wrong? I'll say Kat. <laughs> Kat's right. Ray is wrong. <laughs> <laughs> you can say both. Oh, you yeah. had a 50 50 chance. <laughs> All right, I'll give you one more. This is I a, assumed, though, yeah. that because he was singing about a shoe shine boy, that he was just out of touch. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> Well, he was, Simon is not out of touch, first of so all. Might, that's the throat punch. <laughs> <laughs> you gotta cover that throat. All right, here's one more. I'm going to play another two songs. You tell me which one of these right, is from the 1980s. Okay, here is your first one. You walked into this plastic paradise. All right, and here is the mm-hmm, second mm-hmm. one. Midnight Cat cannot contain herself. <laughs> Which one of those is from the 1980s? Uh, I'll say the first one's from the 80s. All right, Cat, what are you going to say? Really, Ray? Is that what you want to say? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Oh. <laughs> okay, you say it. I'm saying the opposite. Cat, <laughs> I'm sorry, but you're right. right. Ray, I'm sorry, Ray. She's right. See, I'm going to tell you why Cat, he said that because he figured I would have switched the order of them the second time around. He would have. He was just doing that, that Princess yeah. Bride was, thing. Yeah, I was trying yeah. to do the. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I didn't because I knew he would. See, I had to consider what man he was, and I know he's considering what kind of man I would be. <laughs> You know why? Here's yeah. here's why I guessed what I guessed. Okay, yeah. I want to hear this. I'm so curious. No, it's it's actually yeah. something that I was listening to. The vocals yeah. on the songs I picked to be from the '80s were actually yeah. higher. Hmm. Okay. Than the other songs. Okay. So I was assuming because his vocals aren't no good no more that those oh, were the newer but songs. They are. But it turns so out. Good. But it turns out. Yep. He was. He's actually gotten better than he used to be. <laughs> yeah. Yes, right. Some people do think that. Yeah. Indeed. So the first one I played I was, you, sorry. No, no, it's okay. I was wondering yeah. if it was a, yeah, vocal quality thing or if you were yeah. trying yeah, to figure yeah. out from lyrics. Oh, yeah, he's got, he's, yeah. The, no, the, no, it was, it was vocal quality what I was trying to figure out. In the first right. round, I played you All of You from Future Past. And then I played All She Wants, which is from Big Thing, which was their 1988 uh, fifth studio album. And then second, in the second group of songs, I first played you Beautiful Lies, also from Future Past. And I take the dice from Seven and the Ragged Tiger, which is their third studio album. Mm-hmm. You know, I did all this because, you know, in part, well, we had to make up to Kat for torturing her with that Halloween uh, horror movie thing <laughs> a few weeks ago. But also, I really love the new album. And in part, it's because so many of the songs 
are reminiscent of the songs I love from, you know, the 1980s. They are indeed. Do any of them sound like Rio or Hungry Like the Wolf? You'll have to figure that out for yourself. Oh, I'm not going to listen to this album. Oh, absolutely not. I'm not listening to this album. I don't know that I would say that they do, but but they're good. No. See, I, I just listen to, if an expert who loves the band tells me there's a song on there that I would like, then I would listen to that song. Yeah. Mm. But if the expert says, no, there's nothing on that album that's good, then I just won't listen to it. Well, what if the expert says it's a really great album and it doesn't happen to sound like the only two songs that you like? (laughs) Then I just heard everything I need to know. (laughs) I shake my head. Okay, let me think. I think that means he's not going to listen to it. I'm pretty sure you're spot on there. (laughs) No, no, I, I will say though, those the the songs, the partial parts I've heard, and not just these, the other ones I've yep. heard, they, they sound pretty good. Um, they've aged well. Yep. They're they're not my thing, but I think they uh they've held up well. So yep. kudos to them. Listen to anniversary. Did you hear anniversary? Listen to that one. How I no, think, how okay. would I hear that? He's not listening to I it. I want you to figure you it out. You have homework. What <laughs> look, right? You got two you things to-, to do. One, you gotta write that treatment. Mm-hmm. Of your Breakfast yes. Club sequel and, and listen to anniversary. Yeah, yeah. Give us your report next week. Maybe next I week, can do both at the same time. Next week, I'm going to test you on a group of songs. And oh, one of them's going to be anniversary nice. and he's still going to get it wrong. Okay. <laughs> huh. no, I'll get it right then. I'm actually going to play both songs. They're both going to be anniversary from different sections of the song. Mm. There you go. And it, I'm going to yeah. ask him which one's anniversary <laughs> so he could definitely get it right. I thought this was a pretty <laughs> neat story told to uh, Lindsay Parker over at uh, Yahoo, Yahoo Music. Uh, yeah. Simon LeBond told the story about how, you know, so they're celebrating their 40th anniversary. And he explained how when he walked out on stage for the very first time in June of 1980 at the Rum mm-hmm. Runner, which is, you know, the place that helped put them on the map. Uh, mm-hmm. The first song he sang was not a Duran Duran song. He sang, I Feel Love, the Donna Summer song, which, you know, it's a mm-hmm. great song. And somebody told us about the, oh, it was uh, Queen V. We're talking about uh, Donna Summer. Yes. And I think that yes. one is, hmm, that might actually be on this album. Um, okay. But that album and that song is, is a huge part of uh, Giorgio Moroder's legacy because he produced and wrote along with his, you know, protege, uh, uh, Harold Faltemeyer, you know, some of that, uh, the most well-known Donna Summer music, mm-hmm. which is really neat because flash forward to 40 years later, they're now working with Giorgio Moroder, who was, you know, mm-hmm. again, his legendary music producer. And he actually did produce uh, one of the songs I played for you earlier, uh, Beautiful yes. Lies. Beautiful Lies, yeah. Yep. And- you know, Maroder himself, in addition to working on uh, Donna Summer's album, he would then go on to work on a number of songs, either write or compose or produce from many different uh, 80s, uh, not only music from 80s musicians, but for films as well, including uh, uh, Flashdance, Never Ending Story, um, Top Gun, uh, mm-hmm. he worked on as well. Um, I thought this was cool too. Laban admits that, quote, he was never really a fan of disco at all, end quote, <laughs> before joining uh, Duran Duran. Uh, when then, you know, his uh, bandmates, John Taylor and Nick Rhodes, introduced him to Sheik, who we've talked about a number of times mm-hmm. uh, as being an influence for the group. Yeah. All right. Hey, that was 1980s news. Okay. Hey, if you like the show, uh, you can't wait to hear Ray's treatment of the Breakfast Club sequel, which is going to be like the uh, <laughs> Lunch Gang or something like that. Well, here's what's going to happen. All right. <laughs> I'm going to do that on Patreon. Oh. So uh, if you got $3, give it to us and you can hear my treatment mm-hmm. for Breakfast Club. Yeah. 
I was going to say, if you have $5, you could use $2 to buy a coffee that you can then sit down and drink while you spend the other $3 to listen to Ray's thing, in addition to some other additional content that's on there, uh, including our, you know, uh, another breakdown of Halloween songs Ray did, including a very heated discussion we had that started talking oh, about yeah. Mel Brooks. And by the end, I don't it know. Went, that thing went sideways. I don't know quick. what I was shouting by the end. I can't remember. Um, probably something nasty, yeah, it, pro- I'm sure. it probably was. I probably did regret it later. Um, anyway, so there you go. But you can't afford coffee with two bucks is going to be my point. Can you? All right, promo section over. Hey, on today's show, as we mentioned, we're going to be speaking with John Walsh. Not that one. John Walsh, the uh, filmmaker. Uh, we're going to talk to him about uh, Escape from New York, the official story of the film. But he also wrote a, a similar book, Flash Gordon, another, another official book as well. And I thought it was, you know, maybe we'll get to talk to him about this as well. It's really interesting that John, who is a huge fan of Ray Harryhausen, or has been, as a film student, he got to meet Harryhausen because he was going to make a documentary about how Harryhausen's life and his work. Harryhausen's wife then invited, at some point later, invited John to be a trustee of the Harryhausen Foundation, which he's, wow. which you know, uh, cool. you know sits. Uh, and of mm-hmm. course, his first book was actually the award-nominated Harryhausen, The Lost Movies. So he's got a lot of really cool, very thorough books about films, including the one we're going to talk about today. So before we talk to John, I don't know, let's just, I know we all rewatched Escape from New York recently, so because we know we're going to talk about it. And, and I guess, you know, for folks who maybe they don't know the story, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Air Force One uh, gets hijacked and is crashed, deliberately crashed into New York, this, you know, mm-hmm. prison colony. Uh, and mm-hmm. so a rescue mission is... Uh, uh, Hmm, something. Imminent. <laughs> they, they set out to see, well, no, I guess the, yeah, the, the uh, military wants to save the president, of course. And so they send in a prisoner, yeah. a Kurt Russell. <laughs> it's kind of like a suicide squad thing. And I really, I, right. I don't know when yeah. the suicide yeah. squad was first written, but this idea in the suicide squad is the same in the, in the sense that they put something in his neck that will kill him. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they can, you know, he won't just be able to run free. He has to, he has to satisfy the mission or die. Right. He has to close the loop. Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. I'm curious to hear what you think, Kat. Uh, Ray and I have talked about it in the past, but I know you had never seen it until you watched it for the show. Correct. Here's what I thought of the movie. I actually really enjoyed it. We definitely enjoyed it. Mm. Watching it here. I have uh, cool. I have some questions yeah. about the movie. I have some, some things mm. I'm curious about your guys' thoughts yes. on. But um, uh, what in the world <laughs> did Cabby do? To get thrown oh. into that prison situation. Oh, you don't know? <laughs> Ernest Borgnine. No. Oh. What did he, why was he even there? He whoa, was like whoa, whoa. this happy I can, guy. I can <laughs> actually explain this to you. Yeah. I'm so curious. I know exactly why Cabby's there. Why? Because the co-writer, Nick Castle, came up with the character of Cabby to add humor to the movie. Well, he, that he did. He was one of my favorite parts in the movie. He was not originally in the movie. And John, Ca- um, John Carpenter asked Nick Castle to help him come up with some things that would help lighten the mood. And Cabby is the character, he, one of the things he came up with. Well, it, that was a great idea. He definitely did lighten it, especially when he, um, he chickens out, when the Duke shows up with his entourage and, and then suddenly he's there in the nick of time to rescue them when they need to get away from danger. That was great. Yeah. <laughs> so Cabby, definitely a favorite part of uh, the movie for me. Uh, I also loved how but you everybody- you were asking what, what crime he committed, right? Yeah, yeah. What did he do? Why I was, was he guessing he was a short eyes. Is that what they call him in prison, Ray? Short eyes? <laughs> they, Something they, really dark. Oh, no. no, I'm taking this all out. All right. Oh, well, no. 
Taking that they, all Okay. They, that's fine. No, they never explained it. And like yeah. I said, uh, I don't know why I know this, but it's, yeah, it's Nick Castle put him in there because he was asked to add levity to the movie. So I like all this right. where so, a cat asks us questions that she, uh, unanswered questions. I like that I actually had an answer. That's what I like. Right. You always have an answer. He, you, yes. True. But he this time right it's actually, there. this one's actually true. It's not some bull I made up. But that's what you say when it is. Uh, I can't ever tell. What else, Kat? What else you got? But we can. I also, uh, well, I loved how uh, everybody seemed to know Snake Plissken. Oh, yes. You know, what? anytime he bumped into somebody, oh, yes. you're Snake Plissken, aren't you? That was great. Um, the Duke's car is amazing mm-hmm. with the chandeliers <laughs> and yes. Isaac Hayes. Oh, yeah. It's <laughs> the Duke. Yes. Um, I loved uh, at the end, the, the cassette tape switcheroo. The, mm-hmm. uh, right. That was awesome. But I have another question. Um, why did the Duke and his other higher ups, why did they want to leave? <laughs> why? I mean- they kind of had the life, right? Like yeah. they could be as bad as they wanted to be. They got fed, except like maybe the food was so crummy <laughs> that they felt like they had to get out or they wanted to travel. Why Why did they want to leave? <laughs> I've never been to France. <laughs> yeah. Do you want to take a crack at this one, Will? Uh, I'd only be guessing. I don't know if they, I mean- it's a. It's still a prison. I mean, it's still a dump. That's it. That's exactly what <laughs> but, I was going to say. They're in prison. They're in prison, but there's all. It's in New York. There's all these great buildings. It's not like and, they're open, though. I mean, there's there's no electricity. Uh, yeah. Oh, all right. <laughs> they're in prison. <laughs> so it's the principle of the thing. <laughs> yeah. It's beyond if, the principle. If, Imagine what kind of car he would drive if he was out on the other side yeah. of it. Imagine that chandelier. I thought that thing was really cool. Yeah. So, yeah. All right. <laughs> so those uh, are my questions. I suppose we should say that the film was released in July of 1981 and on a budget of $6 million, it grossed more than $25 million. Uh, of mm-hmm. course, it became a, a cult classic. I know that uh, I first saw it on videotape and then watched it a number of times, you know, with different friends and just sort of wore that thing out. Of course, it was <laughs> written and directed by John Carpenter and co-written with Carpenter along with uh, Nick Castle, uh, who Ray mentioned. Um, hey, you know, you guys know it stars Kurt Russell and a number of other folks who are either John Carpenter regulars or like legendary mm-hmm. actors, including uh, Lee Van Cleef mm-hmm. and Ernest Borgnine. Uh, mm-hmm. Isaac Hayes, and of course, uh, some familiar faces, including Donald Pleasance, who was in the Halloween films that we just uh, talked about, and Adrian Barbeau, who I, st- I believe at the time was still yeah. married to John Carpenter. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah. Tom Atkins. Tom Atkins. Played, oh, yeah. He's one of the uh, cops or something, right? Yeah, he played a cop, but he also played Nick Castle in the other movie, who's named after Nick Castle. His name is Nick Castle in what, The Fox? Yes. Yep. Yes. Yes. Absolutely, oh because John Carpenter yes. loves to name characters after people he knows. Well, speaking <laughs> of that, one of the interesting things I learned researching this movie is Snake Plissken, that name actually comes from a real person. Oh, uh, Carpenter, yes. when he was in search for a, a name for the main character, he, he ha- it yeah. happened that a friend of a friend actually knew a person named Snake Plissken, who, as Carpenter described, was a kind of tough, a high school tough guy. Oh. Uh, and he also had a uh, snake tattoo. And Carpenter said, anybody with a snake tattooed on them in some place, that's my kind of hero. 
You know, speaking of Hall- cool. Halloween earlier, here's a couple of other little Easter eggs. Now, I don't know that we'll get to these with John. John's book's probably chock full of these, and we won't have time to touch upon all these, but Jamie mm-hmm. Lee Curtis makes a cameo in Escape from New York. Yes. Oh, you recognized her. Wait. No, no, wait. No, I'm thinking of something else. Wasn't okay. that no. cut out, though? Where was she? Where would she have been? Well, you know what I'm wait. thinking, actually? She does make a cameo in uh, Halloween 2. She's oh. the she's the Halloween narrator. She's the narrator in the cut out in the original beginning of this movie. Yeah, it's it, but she's oh. also the voice of the computer as well. Yeah. Oh. Uh-huh. All right. No, I didn't pick up on that at all. You know, and the last thing I wanted to mention was uh, that I thought was neat was, or, or, or sort of curiosity to me was that um, in talking, explaining how Donald Pleasance or Carpenter explained that Donald Pleasance had uh, wrote his had written his own backstory for Escape from New York. And it was something Carpenter went on to explain that it had something to do with Margaret Thatcher trying to uh, recolonize the United States. Oh. Carpenter said uh, he didn't use any of it and explained that he, that Pleasance eventually got the hang of the film when he realized it was a comedy. Was this movie a comedy? We laughed a lot. You know what, man, this is an action. Yeah, this is an action comedy. I have to agree. Huh. I found myself laughing a lot. Yeah. I, I, all different I, times. I just thought of it as yeah. movies just happened to be funny. You know, it's just not that oh. it, like I would think, uh, you know, well, the Carpenter movie were like, uh, what was it Little, Little Trouble in Big China? Mm, yeah, 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 Big yeah. Trouble in Little China, rather. <laughs> yeah. The unfilmed <laughs> Little Trouble in Big China. Yeah. That should have been the sequel, right? They go to actual China. Oh, absolutely. That should have been the actual sequel. They right go to there. China and it's like, Get a, on it, Ray. it's a minor problem. It's I'm just, on it. <laughs> <laughs> it's a minor problem with some, some food they order. Yes. yes I, I got this. Say, yeah, yeah. I wanted the chicken. <laughs> Said uh, the wrestler and the, the the jock and the princess and the basket case. Just combine them all together. Yeah, I'm working at it. That's I don't know. Just, uh, that movie's an action comedy to me, you know? Big trouble, but yeah. I don't know this More one. intentionally funny. It's more like more a sci-fi action funny. film that happens to be funny. <laughs> but it seems like Carpenter yeah. meant it to be a comedy. Yeah. Well, once I again- I wouldn't call it a comedy. Yeah. No. Once again, though, he asked Nick Castle to yeah. help him make it more mm-hmm. funny to- take away from how dark it was. Yeah. There's uh there's also some uh some comic books that yeah. deal with um at one point there's a story about where they escaped from Cleveland. Mm. <laughs> which I have no idea what the gist of it is, but uh I just think it's funny because you, you know I love mm-hmm. Cleveland so obviously <laughs> that's stuck in my head. But were you aware that there was a, a board game made of this in 1981 by TSR, which is the same people who made Dungeons and Dragons. You know, oh, wow. uh, hmm. I might be thinking of a more recent edition of a game because this does sound familiar to me, but uh, I certainly wasn't aware of it at the time. No, that sounds cool. My, yeah. My buddy had this game and we played the shit out of this no thing. Way. It was so much fun. But doesn't everybody want to be so good? Uh, <laughs> yeah. That's the problem because, yeah. um, I'd be cabby. <laughs> well, you don't pick. You just get a a, oh. a, a peg. So oh. you don't really oh, get just to pick like, who you want to be. But oh. You're not one of the characters. But okay. uh, the game is cool because you, you played the game and like the first part, you're going around trying to find the president or the tape. Yeah. So the first part's kind of weird. You're like, yeah, what the hell's going on? But once somebody has either the president or the tape, all hell breaks loose. Hmm. So 
Um, <laughs> you're trying to get those out of the city across a bridge or back to your starting point, or another player comes, kicks your ass and takes it from you oh. and takes off with it. So it doesn't get good <laughs> until somebody has one of those things. And then they're trying to get it over the bridge. Right. The city. They want to be the one. Oh, because wh- whoever yeah. gets it over gets the deal probably from Hawk. Right. right. But here's the, here's the absolute thing that they included in this game that's insane. There's a card that when you pull it says three turns till everything explodes and the game's over. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> like that's a card, yeah. but you could pull at any time. Mm. But this game is really good. If you can find it, it's out of print, but go mm. find it. It's amazing. Played it. My buddy Terry had this thing. Why well, I played the crap out of this thing back in the day. Loved it. Anything else? What? The uh, the only <laughs> other thing I would point out is this movie took place in 1997. Yeah. Oh, the yeah. Future yeah, yeah, world yeah, yeah. of 1997. So this. In the, <laughs> yes, in the distant future of 1997. Yeah. yeah so the film comes out in. in uh, 81. So in 16 years, New York is going to be a crime ridden uh, prison city. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, they just conf- Well, I guess the country is crime ridden, but they actually convert <laughs> Manhattan into a maximum yes. security prison. Which right. they actually do that in 1988, according to the movie. Mm. So there you go. Oh, wow. So mm. before rap is even yeah. like a legitimate thing in Ohio, <laughs> they've already destroyed. <laughs> They've already turned Manhattan into a maximum security prison. You know, I got to say, Kat, I don't know if you made many trips to New York in the 1980s, but I, I did with my friends. I lived, you know, pretty mm-hmm. close. I could just jump on the path train. Yeah. You know, yeah. it could be believable that they would just turn <laughs> at the time, you know, going to Times Square. It's not what it mm-hmm. is today. It wasn't Disney, no. you know, the Disney uh, didn't right. come in and uh, before Disney had come in and changed it over like that. Uh, yep. I agree. So with it's you. not that unbelievable. Yeah. yeah. No. Okay. Hey, let's talk to an expert on the book and find out what else there, because there's tons. Look, we know this. I really do look forward to seeing this book. We weren't able to see it in advance. The publisher wouldn't let us see it. And that's fine. We're going to get it when it comes out because we're anxious to learn as much as we can about the movie and see the many behind the scenes pictures that have never been been seen before. I'm certain if it's anything like the Flash Gordon book. Uh, So in a moment, let's talk to the man himself, the author. What? We forgot to mention Dick Warlock. Who's that? Kurt Kurt Russell's stunt double. Yeah. The greatest name of any stuntman oh, ever. That's not what I'm thinking Dick of. Dick Warlock. Uh, that is quite a name. Do you have anything more to say about him? No, that's, <laughs> no, that's, that's the it. greatest name of any stuntman that's ever lived. Dick Warlock. And you forget about uh, <laughs> Donald Pleasant's uh, stuntman, also Seymour Butts. He was, uh, <laughs> he was a guy there too. All right. Okay. Hey, John. This is a great welcome for John Walsh. Not that one. All right. Hey. In a moment, we're going to be uh, we're going to speak with our guest today, John Walsh. Our guest today is a double BAFTA-nominated filmmaker and an award-nominated author. He met with the legendary Ray Harryhausen while documenting the iconic animator's life and is now a trustee of the Harryhausen Foundation. Last year, to honor the 40th anniversary of the classic movie, our guest published the revelatory Flash Gordon, the official story of the film. And now we anxiously await his next book, Escape from New York, the official story of the film another 1980s favorite that celebrates four decades since its release. The book is available for pre-order 
on Amazon right now. Please welcome to the show, John Walsh. Hi, Will. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me on. I'm sure you've heard this before. Every time I say we're going to talk to John Walsh, I have to say, not that one. No, the the Most Wanted, isn't it? Was it called Most Wanted in America, your crime show? Yes, I believe so. Yeah, America's Most Wanted. Yeah, that's right. Well, Mm -hmm. I'm I'm kind of in the UK, but I'm not the Most Wanted, but people do want me sometimes. So kind of like that John Walsh, but more ginger and and more English. But otherwise, exactly the same. (laughs) Well, we want you, and we're so glad to have you here. Of course, we're big fans of your work already. We loved your uh, official book about Flash Gordon. We're huge fans of the film, and your book shed new light and perspective on the film that we didn't know. And I thought I knew everything about it, including, you know, the fact that Sam Jones wasn't in a lot of it uh, and that sort of thing. Um, or certainly his voice didn't make it. But uh, so we're ex- equally excited now about your new book, the, uh, the uh, about Escape from New York, another of our favorites from the from the 1980s. So were you a fan of these of 80s films before you became an, a filmmaker and an author yourself? Oh, definitely. You know, I grew up with the VHS age. So renting mm. films or movies um, and we even had a Betamax player as <laughs> hey. well. So we were we were quite the the special people <laughs> at school. I could have Betamax, mm-hmm. I could have, or Betamax. Some people call it yes. Betamax, Betamax and VHS. Um, so yeah, films like Escape from New York, The Thing, Christine, Halloween. You couldn't get into cinemas or theaters to see those if you were young, and as I was back in the day. So you could see them on VHS, mm-hmm. and you could watch them over and over again. And a particular favorite of mine was Escape from New York because it's it's kind of like an eighties action film with Chuck Norris. But it's science fiction, but it's very good and it's got great music and everything else. Um, but it's interesting. Like a lot of the things I'm interested in now, yeah. they weren't necessarily considered to be even, certainly not great in their day, but not even good. Mm. You know, the reviews for maybe this and Flash Gordon, I'm a trustee of the Ray Harryhausen Foundation. Ray Harryhausen's films were never considered like a, a Disney epic. It was never Ray Harryhausen Presents. Mm, true. They were just films that Ray did some of the trick photography on. Um, but I think, you know, over the years, when we look back, they hold a special place. And, uh, you know, it got a 4K remaster from Studio Canal about two or three years mm. ago. That's the real sign of a, of a classic if a studio will spend effectively, you know, more than a million pounds in in bringing it to, uh, to a, a higher definition. You know, it's funny that you talk about the reviews or how maybe it was received or not well received at the time. And... and- it just some of these '80s films, like you're talking about. As an adult now, I'm so I seem somewhat concerned about uh, you know, or, or concern myself with reviews. Like, all right, is this movie good or not? Or to, to help make my decisions. Where when we were kids, we saw these films, we loved them. Some films are, are critic proof, but I think you're right. But you know, years ago, reviewers had more of a say, even on this side of the world. I knew who Siskel and Ebert were, mm. and yet they didn't have their television show in the UK, but we'd heard of them you know, with their thumbs up and down and so on. And um, I think it, it aired briefly on Channel 4 and you can watch old reviews now, which are fascinating to see. And there's nothing I enjoy more, and this sounds a bit sadistic, of a film I really love yep. reading a really bad review <laughs> and somebody saying, this is a real stinker. No one's going to go and want to see this. Uh, Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, which was an enormous flop mm. when it came out and it was produced by Cubby Broccoli, the James Bond mastermind. Sure. Um, people think, no, that wasn't a flop. Are you thinking of the right film? It's like, yep, that was a massive flop in every sense. Critically badly received, um, box office, you know, disaster. Um, Escape from New York had some pretty negative comments when the film came out and they don't get put on posters. You know, you can imagine Mm. your favourite film with the worst quotes, (laughs) don't see this film, you've wasted your money, you know, (laughs) negative stars. Mm. Um, But sometimes it's more interesting to read negative reviews because it says something about 
the politics of film reviews at the time. People were very sniffy of John Carpenter. Mm-hmm. He was very successful straight out of film school. He seemed unstoppable at the time. Um, he had a momentum and was making films in a way outside of the traditional roots, outside of the traditional studios, and yet he was hitting mainstream audiences and making real um, big money. Halloween, his um, film from 1978, um, was the most successful independent feature film of all time at that time. Wow. So, you know, when you gather that much attention and that much success, you know, a lot of um, throwing shade comes with it, as the young people would say, you know, <laughs> yes. I'm going to have a lot of shade thrown on me. Um, and, he get, you know, people dig him out for being successful. Yeah. I guess that's true in all, in all walks of life. But um, there are certain films from the 80s, aren't there, Will, that yeah. uh, are kind of little positive flags where we go, ooh, I'd like to see that in 4K. Yeah. Like Howard the Duck. <laughs> <laughs> All right, slow down. Maybe that, 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 mu- that movie confounds me with its, uh, you know, uh, interesting choice of uh, alien nudity and um, potential bestiality. I, I don't, I don't, you know. Um, talking about Carpenter, you say that he, you know, he sort of was on a, having a run since film school, but I, I do note that um, he, he had conceived of this idea earlier in the 70s, but it didn't get made until, you know, or it certainly wasn't released until uh, 80, 81. But did he have difficulty getting the film made? Yeah. So what happened was um, <clears throat> he was in talks with um, Avco Embassy and they just released uh, The Fog and it had done very well indeed. And uh, so he, he'd left film school. Dark Star was his film school film that got released kind of theatrically after he edited it and added more to it. Then he made Halloween, which is a great success. Then The Fog. Um, and between that, there was a TV project. But when he was approached by Avco Embassy, they wanted him to work on the Philadelphia Experiments, mm. which was a project that then went ahead with another director because they thought he'd be a good fit. And he would, he'd been a brilliant fit for that. But he said to Bob Remy, who was the head of Avco Embassy, you know, I've got this script in the boot of my car <laughs> and it's called Escape from New York. And what it was, it was written, as you say, in the early 70s. And it was as an answer to uh, the phenomenon of Watergate. Mm when US President Richard Nixon was, was about to be impeached for, for a series of, of kind of problems that befell him. You know, nowadays, we look at Richard Nixon, we think, actually, not that bad. Actually, not that bad. Right. You know, you could do worse. You could do a lot worse. And, and to be fair to Nixon's legacy, you know, he did a lot of you know, positive things for, for the US. And I think he later became an ambassador in his right. retirement years. But um, the character of the president in Escape from New York is kind of loosely based on being a very naughty guy, mm-hmm. which is how Donald Pleasance plays him. Yep. And this sense that there's a real sense of anarchy at the top of government and it's filtering down to everything else. So once it filters downwards, society on the street level will be in complete chaos. And so that was the kind of the premise for Escape from New York. And, uh, you know, Bob Remy saw the script and said, yeah, let's do it. But let's do it. With Charles Bronson. Mm. Mm. It's like, oh. <laughs> um, Charles Bronson was hot from Death Wish. He's a brilliant actor. There's nothing to take away from, from Mr. Bronson there. But um, John Carpenter felt, no, that's not going to be a good fit for me. Me and Charles Bronson, you, you could end up with a situation like on Spartacus, where if the star is bigger than the director mm. and the great Kirk Douglas, the actor who, who led the uh, Slaves Revolt in Spartacus, right. he got the director fired and had him replaced with someone he thought would be much more malleable, Stanley <laughs> Kubrick. And it's like, whoa, that's not a mistake you want to make twice. Yep. <laughs> and of course, Kubrick made a brilliant film and, you know, it was a great success. But John Carpenter didn't want to be in a position on his first major budget picture, six 
million dollars, mm. six times more than the fog cost, to kind of surrender the key control to potentially an actor who might not step into the director's chair, but certainly challenge his authority on how he wants to make the picture. Right. And of course, he had an idea of who he wanted cast. And when he revealed the name to, to Bob <laughs> Remy at Embassy, they were like, unless there's, is there a, is there a different Kurt Russell than we know than the guy who's, who's been very good in Disney films right. and recently played Elvis in your TV adaptation? But he doesn't seem like a hard man. He's more of a romantic lead, which he was, and he was very successful at it. But of course, history was made when, when Kurt was cast. And uh, we can't imagine anyone else now, yeah, can we, Will, no. than, than Kurt Russell in that role? Yeah. And, and, but for that film, I don't know that we would have had so many, a string of amazing Kurt Russell films throughout the 1980s. He certainly became a you know, associated with that sort of anti-hero. And then later on, we would see a very comedic side of him as well. And it's, it's astonishing to me how many, you know, sir, sir, he worked with Kurt Russell before. Ultimately, he works with Kurt Russell again, of course. And there's other folks that here are part of the sort of, uh, you know, John Carpenter family, including Donald Pleasance, literally family, Adrian Barbeau. I think at the time they were still married. Uh, even Frank Doubleday had been, uh, had worked uh, with him. Nick Castle, the co-writer, was the shape in, the ho in Halloween. What is it about John Carpenter that... Um, I guess folks would continue to want to work with him, you know? Well, there is that kind of film school camaraderie. Mm. Um, I'm, I'm a former film school student. I went to the London Film School in London, as you do when you're English. <laughs> um, I was the only boy from London when I was in my course because oh. it's a private school. It wasn't funded by the, the local government. Um, so it was mostly, um, you know, wealthy to do kids <laughs> from, from European families and from America who was there. I was there with Richard Harris's son when he was uh, trying to become a director and so on. Oh. Um, so... Film school camaraderie, you, you get the best people around you and you kind of hold on to them. So when you move from shoot to shoot, you kind of check their availability before you start booking locations and, and equipment because you want those people with you. Mm. And it's both a sense of security because you know what you'll get from them, but also it's a psychological security blanket because you, you, every new film is, is, a, is an undiscovered country and you want as few unfamiliar things around you as possible. Right. So it's right that they bring people with them. Dean Cundy, the director of photography, who we talked to in the book, um, he regularly worked with John on, on many films. So he, he said to me that, you know, once you've worked with John Carpenter, you kind of, um, if you haven't worked with anyone else, you realize how spoiled you are when you go off to work with someone else because <laughs> right. mm. you don't get treated twice as well on other pictures. Suddenly you're getting notes from people who you've never met telling you how you should like things. Um, so I think that film school camaraderie and that sense of family goes from film to film. And uh, a lot of the photography in the book that hasn't been seen before by Kim Goldteb Walker, who's one of the leading stills photographers in cinema, um, she revealed the same to me. She felt she was part of John's family and she did the unit stills on, on, on most of his major pictures. So I think that, you know, if you can if you can bring that sense of family, then people will be attracted to it and you'll get the best from them. Mm -hmm. And speaking about the cast, uh, you know, it's, it's always interesting to me to see that Ernest Borgnine showed up in so many films throughout the 1980s when he had such a, uh, history, I guess it's not a story, but he certainly had accomplished so much by the, he had been an actor for decades prior to that. And he started appearing in eighties films that I would, <laughs> I think my fam, my parents would be shocked to see, hey, wait, isn't that Ernest Borgnine from, you know, Mikhail's Navy or something sort of more out of character? No, it's a, it's a, it's a good observation. Look, um, originally he wanted to play the part um, of Hawk, which um, oh. is played by Lee Van Cleef. He wanted to be the prison guard. He felt mm. that that was really where he, he, he could be um, best. And, and in a sense, you can see that because he's a large character and physically a large presence as well. 
But um, when I think Ernest Borgnine, I'm thinking the Poseidon Adventure. Uh, of course. Which is fantastic. And mm-hmm. the Black Hole, which I'm a big yes, fan of the Black Hole. There needs to be a movie book, if not by me, by someone. <laughs> Please do the making of the Black Hole because people do not understand that film mm-hmm. and they need, they'll they understand it when I'm finished with them. <laughs> you know, they need to appreciate that film. It's such a good film, The Black Hole. If you haven't seen it, please go and see it. So, you know, he was switching from what he used to do, which was very serious dramas. Of course, he won his Oscar for Marty in 1955 to doing stuff which was more out of, out of the, the normal for him. So science fiction, you know, um, and, and violent films like um, Escape from New York, which had an R certificate. So that, The Black Hole and other things. But I think actors get to a certain stage, like Donald Pleasance, where they'll actually say yes to most things if the money and conditions are right. Um, <laughs> Michael Caine famously said quite recently in his own biography that if it's a million dollars, I'll do the picture. And, uh, and somebody would say, well, and, and I don't even read the script. And it's like, well, what if they want you to do nude? For a million dollars, they can see anything. And uh, if, the, if, if the film is bad, you know, he says, well, if the film's bad, no one's going to see it. So everyone wins. Um, so he gets his million dollars. He doesn't damage his reputation. So there is a school of thought with acting that if it's, if it's the right money, just do it. Yeah. Um, and the more you're seen, the more you get seen. And I doubt Ernest Borgnine would thought he'd be remembered more for the black hole, Poseidon and Escape mm. from New York than Marcy that won him his Oscar. And yet Marcy, no one's running around doing a 4K restoration of that film. It's a great film, not throwing shade on Marcy, yeah. mm-hmm. but look, you know, none of the actors who appeared in this film would have thought, wow, this is a special moment. This is really something special, perhaps Kurt Russell, but yeah. um, all of them saw it as, as what it was. It was a job and then they moved on to the next job. It's funny you think about, you bring up the black hole and we were talking earlier about uh, films that are maybe not uh, well regarded or received that we love. That's definitely one. I remember at the time it being panned when I was just a kid and thinking, how could you not like this? It's fantastic. People think, oh, it was Disney doing a Star Wars. It mm. was not. It was, Well, yes, it was because it had the robots and the spaceship. It was not. It was actually the Walt Disney Company doing a Poseidon adventure in space. Mm. Originally, it was going to be called Space Probe One. And it was all about a disaster that happens in space. And eventually, obviously, with the success of Star Wars, it it affected what they were going to do in the storyline. But no, it it was much more had its origins based in the Poseidon adventure, thus the casting of people like Ernest Borgnine. And when you think of it in those terms, it's like, oh, actually, yes, because... Spoiler here, there is a big there is a big thing that happens at the end of the black hole. I won't yes. reveal too much, but the, the Cygnus and the Palomino, you know, there's going to be a problem with those two ships. Um, and when you think of it in those terms, it's actually much more enjoyable. But to try and go into it thinking this is a Disney Star Wars, then it's, it's not really going to work for you. Yeah. Is there a black hole at the end? Is that what you're saying? Oh, my goodness. Spoiler alert. Yeah. Um, so thinking about the black hole, when I saw it, I remember as a kid being again, being, I don't know, what was I, 10 or so years old when it came out, um, inspired. I didn't become a filmmaker like yourself, but being inspired, feeling like I, I want to be involved in this industry in a sense that I, they could bring these robots and these spaceships, et cetera, to life. Were, were there particular challenges in bringing uh, escape to life? There is not a whole lot of, I think, special effects that folks would appreciate or, or, or in the film, but we know there's certain things happening that couldn't possibly have really happened. And yet they did this, you know, decades before CGI was effectively a tool. Yeah, no, absolutely. So if, if you know, the, the effects in Escape from New York are so subtle um, and some people don't even realize they are effects. Mm. Some people think that they just got Manhattan when the lights were off. Well, the lights <laughs> never off in Manhattan. You can't do a, a flyover. It's not like some parts of London at night where there's no lights. Um, so 
when the production design uh, Joe Alves created the um, the concept art for the film, which which is in the book here, and, and some of these are being seen for the first time, the special effects that were needed to fly Snake Pliskin onto the World Trade Center Twin Towers and and what follows with the um, with the glider, mm-hmm. they went to John Dykstra, who'd created the special effects. Star Wars, right. and 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 said to Mr. Dykstra, "Look, this is what we need." And he sat down with them, and he created a kind of a a list of uh, of of his requirements from Escape from New York, the production, and it came in at nearly three million dollars. Mm. How much the effects would cost, and John Dykstra needed one million dollars for himself as a fee. Wow! Again, you know, quite right because you know he he is a great special effects person, and sure that would be. You know, but they 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 couldn't afford that. I mean, you know, the film only cost six million, and they only had a tiny amount of money for the effects. Right. So in the end, they went to Roger Corman's New World Pictures, and they mm. just come off the picture Battle Beyond the Stars. You you must know that film, Will. By name, I can't. I couldn't recall oh. the the. Oh, yeah. Battle Beyond the Stars is great. Now that really is like a uh, somebody else's um, version of Star Wars, yeah. a lower budget Star Wars. Oh, and it, it had John Boy Walton in it okay. as well. Okay, yes, right. <laughs> Um, so, uh, what's that actor called? John Boy Walton. He was, um, is it Richard Thomas? Um, yes. but, uh, yeah. So the folks down at new world knew how to do special effects, motion control, that sort of thing. And they put together the effects on this and they did it for around $350,000. And the effects on this are amazing because when we think of some filmmakers go back and they put in a computerized, whatever, whether it's a jab of the heart or a yeah. computerized Yoda, we know who we're talking about. Yes. 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 Um, on Escape from New York, you don't need to go back and do that because the effects really work. And so all of that stuff in the opening with the glider, the Manhattan shots, the glass shots, um, I think they work really well because they're they're done quite simply, but done very effectively. Right. And of course, if you read the massive special effects, I'm looking at the massive special effects section of the book now, mm. and I only wish I could share it with you because I'm not allowed to share the book before it's published. Um, everything is in here, all of the secrets of how they shot that, um, and of course, I suppose the most incredible thing about the production team on the special effects was there was a young special effects man who'd worked on Battle Beyond the Stars. He did some of the glass painting shots that showed um, Central Park and the, and the buildings around. It was James Cameron. Who? Never heard of him. What's um, he doing yeah. now? You know, if I recall, and uh, certainly I look forward to looking. Uh, look, I wish we could see the book. I could have seen the book already. I look forward to seeing it and uh, real soon. But I, I recall that you know, to your point about them being on a shoestring budget, and, and as we know, sort of parameters you know force you to be even more creative. That these folks were photocopying textures to, you know, create the twin towers, for example, the the exterior, uh, using a reflective surface to create the Hudson River around it's just little things that are just brilliant that you know filmmakers uh you know sort of under only filmmakers sort of uh, i guess under the gun as far as time constraints and money constraints would uh, be able to conceive of absolutely you know when when you've got the challenge of how can we do this on this money then you you kind of find a way and there was both the youth and energy there down at new world and of course roger corman himself is famous for for being a kind of a uh, a seedbed for new talents, you know, Jack Nicholson, Francis Coppola, Martin Scorsese, they've all gone through, as it were, the, the uh, Roger Corman, right. uh, as it was, unofficial filmmaking school. Um, but you have people like John Wash, um, no relation to me, I'm John Walsh, but John Wash, who'd worked on on the original Star Wars film, creating some of the um, computer graphics readouts for the uh, Death Star, you know, at the end when they're, right. when they're plotting how to, to bomb the Death Star. Well, he created the vector style graphics for Escape from New York, where you see that Computer POV as the um, 
as, as, as the glider is kind of floating through into New York. Well, that was all done with, with model work. And it was photographed in black and white and later a green effect was put on it to make it look like computer graphics. So it's incredible. Even down to that, they, they weren't able to achieve what we could do now on an iPhone. Right. <laughs> they couldn't do then. They had to do something that was both um, in the physical realm and that could be photochemically filmed. Because, of course, it's all very well being digital. But what people don't understand about digital is that it's very difficult to read digital onto film. And the folks doing Tron, which is another great film that needs a book. Yes. If yes, um, Bob Iger, if you're listening, you know, <laughs> we have asked, as you know. Um, so um, there's only about, is it six or seven minutes of computer graphics in Tron? The rest of it is a rather wonderful form of um, chroma key or color separation overlay and it's animation and hand-drawn animation. So it's very difficult to create convincing graphics, but also to burn it to film because you need to burn it to a film negative in a convincing way that can then be struck onto what's called an interpositive, then prints for theatres. So one of the big barriers to getting um, computer graphics on film wasn't the creation of the graphics mm. because they could be done in a digital environment, was being able to scan them, read them to film right. um, so that it looked like you weren't sticking a camera on a, on a TV monitor because that just looks like what it is. Right. Wow, I hadn't considered that, of course. Um, and we did talk to Cindy Morgan some time ago about Tron and uh, you know, it struck me as interesting that, um, well, there's some sort of sort of Wizard of Oz elements to it, this idea that, you know, he starts in one place and goes to another. And sort of building on that, it's curious to me, as you mentioned, that sort of a, a meta Wizard of Oz in a sense that they filmed it essentially in black and white because of the colors or uh, the costumes, et cetera, the backgrounds are monochrome. So they, they could then print it in color, ultimately. There you go. Another. That's just another. You can put that in your book when you get to write it there, John. That's free. Oh, yes. I, oh, please, someone let me write the Tron book. <laughs> we, there's a lot of books we need from John Walsh. Come on. We oh, need, yes, I, accident, I, came, I became an author accidentally. Yep. And people, when I, when, they, when I speak to other would-be authors, you can see them clenching their fists ready to give me a punch up the bracket. <laughs> You're a what? You're an accidental <laughs> what? Come closer so I can get a good old swing at your face. Um, it sounds very ungrateful to say I'm an accidental author, but I am. When I did Harry House and the Lost Movies, um, I had I did that because I'm a trustee of the Harryhausen Foundation. I wanted people to find out about his unmade films. Um, but the publisher said, what do you think about another book? And I was like, well, yeah, if you want. Not from me, though. Um, and they said, oh, no, from you. Would you like to do another book? And I said, oh, what on Harryhausen? And they said, well, what would you like to do? And I said, well, next year, this was in 2019, I was speaking. I said, it's the 40th anniversary for Flash Gordon. Mm. And I said, you know, maybe you guys should do that. And they said, well... Maybe you could do that. And I said, well, okay, well, maybe, I guess. But they said, uh, I thought it was a great idea that they hadn't thought of it. And they said, oh, we thought of that before, of course. We weren't waiting for you, John Walsh, to come along and tell us when the 40th anniversary was. And they said, we can't get the rights. Mm. I was like, oh, well, that explains why it's not out there. So often when you think there should be a film book for this film and that film and so on, right. when you drill down into it, people have had the idea before but the rights aren't available. Or as in the case of Flash Gordon, the rights are in three different places. Mm. And so I spent eight months bringing them into one place. And then that was not a condition of me getting the book, but they kind of said, well, since you pulled it together, you can, you should write the, uh, write the thing. But the shock of my life came when we got the rights and I was like, great, we've gone, we've done the hard work. When they opened up what they laughingly called the archives for the films, there was virtually no photographs in there for the book that would be of any interest to people who'd pay upwards of 30 or more dollars for a book because there was the usual shots of the actors looking beautiful. Mm. 
But where are the behind the scenes shots of the sets being built, the spaceships being flown and all of that stuff you'd find in one of those big Star Wars books? Where are those photos? Because they must have been taken. Flash Gordon cost more than three times what the original Star Wars cost. Wow. And there's Star Wars books coming out every two weeks. Yeah. You know, the Star Wars cookbook, the Star Wars um, episode guides, the, uh, you know, I'm expecting a highway code next for Star Wars. You know, there's nothing they won't do, you know, for a Star Wars book or a Mandalorian or something, yes. which is great. You know, I'm not throwing shade on that either. Yeah. But um, Flash Gordon had no, no good images. So we, I spent a long time, as I did with Escape from New York, trying to find those shots that you haven't seen before, mm. because you don't want to see basically a bunch of publicity stills. Um slapped into a story that you've read a thousand times before in maybe a, a DVD inlay or a right. CD booklet. Right. It's got to be more than that. You know, he, as you said yourself, Will, with, with Flash, you, there were things in there you didn't know. Well, I want people to find out something they didn't know on virtually every page right. of these books. Otherwise, you know, why, why do them? Was the documentation for Escape a little more readily available? Um, it was, but there was a lot less of it. You know, it's the film is effectively one night in, in the life of, of Manhattan in the future, but was St. Louis, of course, as you know. Um, and because it is a much lower budget film, Flash Gordon was over $35 million. And this was shot a year later for $6 million. Um, there, there was less photography, less colour photography, and less special effects, and therefore less photos of the effects being, being made. Um, but I think it was just as interesting a story and the book is absolutely crammed full. I'm, I'm looking at it now. I'm really sorry I can't share it with you. Uh, it's absolutely crammed full of, of great shots. We have the deleted scenes in here. We have high-res imagery that's never been seen before, um, stuff on the soundtracks, the poster artwork, poster art that's never been seen before, wow. um, what the release poster was going to be and what it turned out to be. New stuff from Drew Struzan. Mm. People know Drew Struzan as the greatest poster artist of pretty much all time. Of course. And people think, well, he didn't do Escape from New York. Have a look in the book. We've we've got stuff from Drew. No, um, wow. So it, it's it's finding those things that either you didn't know existed or people have said, oh, did you know it could be this? It could be that. And the last thing you want is a couple of years after the book is published for someone to to bring out a a, a picture online and say, look, this should have been in your book. Right. Because <laughs> so, the shame, uh, yeah, <laughs> the shame. The uh, speaking about being an accidental author, so you went from a film, mm. you know, went from being a film fan of the 1980s to being an author now, writing about these. What sort of interviews can we expect in the book, and what is it like to interview folks that made these films that you love from your youth? Well, it's um, it's interesting because you know you take in the case of uh, of John and Kurt, everyone who's alive basically is in the book, and we have some interviews with people who've passed um, that haven't been published before, mm. um, so we've got a strong. Um, a strong footprint from Donald Pleasance, Harry Dean Stanton, Isaac Hayes, and, uh, and Ernest Borgnine. Um, it's interesting because in the case of John Carpenter, his successful films were those first half dozen films or so. He had as many unsuccessful films mm. after that. And kind of the tipping point when I spoke to Dean Cundy, he was saying that uh, after Big Trouble in Little China, you know, that was a major studio picture that didn't find its audience at that time. And, and things went into a bit of a downward spiral for John. And uh, it was harder and harder for him to get films made. It was harder to get a decent sort of budget. And, and not all of those films were that successful. I mean, I, I'm a fan of, um, now that people know I like Howard the Duck and, and the Black <laughs> Hole, my, my opinion has zero, zero <laughs> confidence with people. But 
I am a fan also of Memoirs of an Invisible Man with Chevy Chase. Mm -hmm. And that is a good film. If you can watch that film, I'm a fan of all those actors. I'm a big fan of John Carpenter. And I think that film really does work. By the time I'd seen it on video, it had already been this terrible flop that people were complaining about. And I was kind of braced to watch it like, oh, I hope it's going to be okay. And it was more than okay. It was great. Um, So it must be depressing for John. We didn't talk much about other films. It was the focus was this one. but he is, as we speak, one of the most 4K remastered directors out there. You know, more of his films are in 4K than most other directors. Wow. And that's really testament to the longevity of those earlier films. Um, but there's always kind of a fanboy element in me that I thought, if I ever get the chance, I must ask this. Oh, yeah. I must ask that. <laughs> um, and so you kind of collate these questions over the years. It happened with Flash Gordon. It happened with Ray Harryhausen. I'd ask Ray about unmade films mm. and the sequel to Clash of the Titans and that sort of thing. Um, but filmmakers are quite cagey. I am as well. If if anyone was ever interested in writing a book about things I should have made that I didn't, <laughs> it'd be like really thick. It'd be like a yellow pages, but no one's going to want to read it. Um, but I wouldn't want to speak to a writer. If they said, oh, now what about this project? And what about, I'd be like, mm, because it's like a big book of failure. So filmmakers, <laughs> well, it is. You know, filmmakers don't really want to talk about what didn't happen. Right. And sometimes they get defined by early successes. And that can be quite bittersweet because- in later reviews for Carpenter's films, people would always draw up the examples of in his heyday with Halloween, The Fog, mm. The Thing, and uh, Escape from New York. But now we are long from those heyday days and we're, we have, you know, um, vampires on Mars and, 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 and so on, you know, and, and uh, Children of the Damned. So it's, it, it's tricky. Um, the definition of what success is has kind of changed. Mm. Because I included The Thing in that lineup, but The Thing was both a critical and commercial failure. Yeah. Um, but people who see The Thing now are like, mm, are you sure? Yeah. It's like, yeah, I was there. You know, I, in that, I, was on, uh, Lived I wasn't it. in Alaska, um, <laughs> but I was kind of there when, when people were kind of like, mm. um, and it wasn't that there was a great outpouring of criticism. It was just people weren't interested. They just kind of shrugged their shoulders and like, no, don't fancy mm. that. Um, and it's interesting how, us, the fanboys, are now more in control of, of books, TV, media, and editorial. So we can say, you know, we love The Black Hole. We love The Thing is, is rightly regarded now as a, as a horror classic. The Shining that Stanley Kubrick made came out to really almost universal negative reviews. Mm. Um, Stephen oh. King, whose book it was based upon, he didn't like it. Right. And, uh, and, and Kubrick himself said he kind of made it because he had a deal with Warners. He got the rights for this, or they got the rights for him. And he did it because... Other projects he wanted to do, including Schindler's Ark, um, which was based on what eventually became Schindler's List and AI, um, he wasn't in a position to to make at that stage. So it's always a series of compromises. Um, and it's odd that you get defined by films that you weren't expecting. Mike Hodges was the second choice director on Flash Gordon. He'd just been sacked from the second Omen film, Damien, mm. Omen 2. So he took it because he needed to pay his bills his two sons were sort of 10 and 11 and they love Star Wars. And he kind of thought, well, what the hell? I'll do this. And yet Mike gets more, asked more questions about that than any of the other great films that he's made. So <laughs> it, it, it's, it's tricky for filmmakers. And I suppose the same for anyone in the creative field, whether you're a writer or a musician, you can sometimes be remembered for things which at the time you just thought were just another job. Yeah. It's, it's shocking. Like you pointed out, so many great films that he made that weren't appreciated that... Thank goodness they're now finding their, uh, I guess, 
finding the love, although they, for, for decades, folks, certainly in our generation, have appreciated these films. I know most recently in, uh, I think it was Empire Magazine in, in the July issue, I believe, uh, Mr. Carpenter stated that there's, he always felt there's more story to tell, that uh, Snake Plissken's got a second or third film in him. I don't know that we'll ever get to see them. Um, is there more story to tell? I, I can't imagine what that would be in this day and age. Well, the, the, yeah. Now, um, the character of Snake Plissken was known to Hawk because um, of the Leningrad kind of situation. There's, right. there's a kind of a, an active Cold War going on with, um, with East European countries, and, and that's what Snake was known for. So he was known as being this kind of incredible soldier. So there is, there is a kind of an origins story, perhaps, mm. to be told. Right. Um, there's the official sequel, of course, Escape from L.A., sure. which didn't do very well. And that, that kind of puts paid to, I think, uh, John and Kurt coming back for a kind of a third bite asset. But with um, the success of kind of streaming services, I think, and this is just me speaking outside the box, it might suit better a television series where mm. you have the, both the origin stories and Escape from New York with some other escapes kind of built in. Right. You could get a series out of Escape from New York. I mean, right. there, are some, there, there are some worse series out there that are streaming on a thinner premise. So that's my pitch. If Netflix are listening, there's worse series out there. So why not do this one? So you got a lot of pitches, John. We look forward to all the books that you'll eventually come out with and maybe a streaming service. You're maybe a showrunner behind the uh, Escape streaming services, a show rather. But we are most excited about your forthcoming book, Escape from New York, the official story of the film. It's available for pre-order on Amazon right now. Thank you so much for your time today, John. Not at all. My pleasure. And, uh, and as Snake Pliskin would say, or as people say to Snake Pliskin, I thought you were dead. I do look forward to reading this book, though. The Flash Gordon book is amazing. And, you know, if you're a fan of this uh, movie, uh, this book sounds like it's going to be amazing. We look forward to seeing it soon. I wish we could have seen it already. But uh, just based mm -hmm. on our conversation with John, it was in good hands. You know, he's a very knowledgeable and uh, obviously uh, uh, well-researched and uh, and thoughtful and, 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 and talented uh, filmmaker and author. So, um, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so hey, don't forget, you can, you can pre-order it right now. Uh, we have already uh, on Amazon. Again, you're going to, you, yeah, after you pre-order it, you'll be able to get your hands on it on November 22nd in it, if you're in the UK and December 14th if you're in the US. Perfect uh, holiday gift, right? Absolutely. So let's, we can't end the show without telling you about the many folks who helped bring it to you. And so we want to give a special thanks to our these particular Patreon patrons, John Henderson, Craig Coletta, Bart Arnold, John Kaminsky, and new Patreon supporter, John Reddick. Wow. Yeah, that's John Reddick. Huh. Our oh my good, gosh. Our good buddy over at Gen X. <laughs> yeah, we know that guy. Yeah. <laughs> He's got his, his, he hosts his own uh, amazing nostalgia-filled uh, podcast, Gen X. Growing up, you should check it out. Yeah. Oh, thank you so much, guys. Yes, thank you, guys. And to those of you listening, if you go to patreon.com slash 1980s now, we can call your name out too. Yes. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes, we can. You left out the part where you say, give us money. Oh, oh, oh that's your part. <laughs> yeah, he did that earlier. All right. Hey, yeah, we yeah. <laughs> will talk to you next time on 1980s now. See ya. Later. <laughs>